Hello, and welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as the social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series is from our Hot Topic series. We are very pleased to welcome Dr. Elliot Israel to our episode to discuss the PREPARE trial, which was recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Dr. Israel is a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, where he serves as the director of the Pulmonary Function Lab, as well as director of clinical research in the pulmonary division at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. Dr. Israel has a long and distinguished career as a clinician scientist and is well-recognized as a leading asthma researcher and expert, including his work on the study we will be discussing today, which is titled, Reliever-Triggered Inhaled Glucocorticoid in Black and Latinx Adults with Asthma. And with that, Dr. Israel, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I, this is a fascinating study, and I think your your perspective and uh, thoughts on this will be very helpful for our listeners. Uh, but before we get into those details, you have really dedicated your career to improving our understanding of airway inflammation and asthma. If you don't mind sharing, what initially got you interested in this topic, and what continues to drive your passion to keep trying to answer new questions? Uh, thanks for asking that question, Dave. So I um, was interested in physiology and in immunology, and allergy and immunology provided a, and pulmonary disease, and I'm double-boarded in both, um, provided an opportunity to bring those together. And asthma actually brings that together par excellence um, in the sense that um, there is airway dysfunction, um, which is physiologically based, and a lot of the airway dysfunction is due to airway inflammation. And what also really spurred me was treating patients with asthma and seeing how, A, um, this could be a devastating disease. There's nothing quite as bad as feeling like you can't catch your next breath. Um, it, it really exceeds pain um, in terms of the terror it can induce. And the fact that actually asthma is something that's fairly treatable, that you can really make people better and that if you give them the right therapy, you can really change people's lives. And so I felt that here was a um, area where I could combine my interests um, and actually really make a difference for patients. Well, that's great. And you know, you're not alone. There's many uh, researchers and clinicians that share your passion. And in fact, World Asthma Day is coming up on May 3rd, 2022. And this year's theme is titled Closing Gaps in Asthma Care. Why is this an important area to address? Well, you know, so I think we're over the past 30 years and, and to a large uh, um, extent, um, this has been due to advocacy of allergists and immunologists and, and pulmonologists um, who have really focused increased attention on the morbidity of asthma, how there are deaths from asthma and how asthma affects and reduces the quality of life for many people who have it. And it's a very, very common disease. As you know, it's about seven to 10% of patients 
of people um, have asthma. And the particular problem, though, is that asthma doesn't affect all groups in the same way. What really happens and what's really unfortunate is that for black African-American patients and for Hispanic Latinx patients, there really is an increased morbidity of asthma. Blacks have twice the rates of death from asthma. They have almost twice the rates of hospitalizations. Hispanic Latinx patients in certain subgroups have two to three times uh, the rates of hospitalizations and deaths. And there's 50% increased rates of exacerbations. And so the, these are groups that are disproportionately affected. And the interventions that we've generally used don't seem to really be narrowing the gap. While they've improved asthma morbidity in general, the gap between these groups and white patient groups really persists. And so that's really a problem in terms of how we address that continued gap in care. Mm. I think that's a, a great segue into the clinical trial uh, that, that you were part of and that we're going to discuss today. And it appears to address a significant gap, as you mentioned, in, in how asthma disproportionately affects Black and Latinx adults. What was the reason for focusing on these particular groups for this uh, specific study? As I think I mentioned, the, the disproportionate morbidity of asthma in these groups really I think stimulated me and my co-investigators to say, are there interventions that we can do, that we can implement, that we can try that will, will, will reduce some of the morbidity here? And the problem has been that when people have tried to do interventions um, for these groups, a lot of the interventions, A, don't seem to really make make a big difference, or B, they're interventions that require a lot of resources and that aren't sustainable, um, like having a nurse call every week or something like that. You just can't really mm -hmm. roll that out um, in terms of making a difference. And so we asked ourselves, are there ways that we can try to um, reduce the morbidity for this patient population by involving this patient population in part of the solution? Yeah, and as we talk about some of the details of the study and uh, um, the protocols involved and things like that, I think that's going to get you know teased out a little bit. But before we get into that, can you tell us about the evidence surrounding the use of a single inhaler containing both an inhaled glucocorticoid and rapid onset long-acting beta agonists to treat asthma? Is this treatment effective only when used daily and consistently, or can these inhalers treat acute asthma as well? So that, that's a great question, Dave. And so, you know, up until... I'd say five or um, eight years ago, when we talked about using anti-inflammatory therapy in asthma, we always talked about having patients take daily inhaled corticosteroid. What we said was that to reduce the inflammation, you needed to use this regularly so you could damp down the inflammation. And what we've learned over time is that in addition to doing that, especially for patients with moderate to severe asthma, one can have, instead of using a reliever inhaler that just contains a bronchodilator, one can use a reliever inhaler that contains a bronchodilator and an inhaled corticosteroid, either by combining them in one, one product or by telling patients, as you'll see what we didn't prepare, to take their inhaled corticosteroid when they actually need their albuterol or need their bronchodilator. And so what, what has been now shown in multiple studies is that in mild patients, one can potentially ask those patients to use a, either a product that contains an inhaled corticosteroid and a 
quick-acting bronchodilator, um, or tell them to take an inhaled corticosteroid um, when they use their bronchodilator. And in moderate-severe patients, in addition to using the regular therapy, using their once or twice a day, most likely twice a day therapy, that one can tell them instead of using just a bronchodilator, that one can use a one should use a bronchodilator combined with an inhaled corticosteroid. And this is what's called SMART therapy, mm-hmm. single maintenance and reliever therapy, or what I like to call because I want to expand it, simultaneous maintenance and reliever therapy. And so in moderate severe asthma, telling patients to take, and in this case, um, it's a inhaled corticosteroid plus formoterol, um, which formoterol is a quick acting, long acting beta agonist, um, you can't use salmeterol, which is not as quick acting. But so taking inhaled corticosteroid plus formoterol, um, and that comes in a single product, and using that twice a day and as needed is smart therapy. And, um, and that therapy has been shown to reduce exacerbations by 30 to 50%. The thing about smart therapy um, is that in moderate to severe asthmatics, as we'll talk about more later, it involves changing your underlying therapy. In addition to that, it relies on the fact that you're only using an inhaler for your reliever therapy. And the problem is that many patients, especially our more moderate to severe patients, actually use nebulizers. And we've mm-hmm. studied this and spoken to patients. And I, I don't know about your practice, but I, in mine, I constantly tell patients, don't use your nebulizer. Take five puffs of your inhaler and you know you don't need to be tied to a nebulizer and yet when i come back to the office months later and i look at the refills that patient has refilled their nebulizer Um, and we've spoken to patients and patients don't want to give up their nebulizers and there appear to be several reasons for this one is that for a lot of them they really feel that it just gives them more relief the other is that they know when they go to the emergency room that's what they get treated with and they say to themselves so when i'm in bad straits i really need to use the nebulizer that's what they do in the emergency room that's what i can do at home. Um, The other is that there are discrepancies or disparities here in terms of socioeconomic issues. Um, And many of the government health plans pay for nebulizers without a deduction because they're available in 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 generic form. Whereas the inhalers, because of the switch to hydrofluoroalkanes, are all non-generic. And therefore, there's um, a larger larger amount to pay, and in many cases, a copay. So the problem is that um, smart therapy has been studied, excluded in every single case where smart therapy has been used. It's excluded patients who are in nebulizers, which, as we'll talk about, is almost half of the population, more than half of the population that we studied. In addition, smart therapy, when we say there's a 30 to 50% reduction, the patients that were entered into those studies in in the smart therapies were not studies that were done in real life. So to get into those studies, you had to bronchodilate on your first visit. Many of the patients we see don't bronchodilate when you test them. And patients who bronchodilate frequently are undertreated. Um, That's usually what I think about in in patients. The other is every patient who got admitted to these studies in the moderate severe asthmatic patients had to be patients who had an exacerbation in the past year. Again, that's not necessarily the entire population we see. And as you'll see, we we did not, in the study that we looked at, we did not 
um, enforce those restrictions or even ask for those restrictions um, because we wanted to have a very broad population of poorly controlled asthmatics. So SMART is very useful, but we need to realize that it's been tested in a very specific population. The other part of it is that SMART has almost, in none of the studies, has included the population that we've just talked about with its significant discrepancies. And as I've mentioned, there are many reasons to think that SMART may not be quite as effective as we've seen in the, st in the studies that have been done, um, which weren't real life studies. Well, boy, uh, we could take this conversation in a completely different direction. You touched upon important concepts about uh, all the factors that lead to ongoing nebulizer use. And we know that the use of uh, HFA inhalers can be equivalent, if not superior. You talked about how uh, research studies don't always mimic what we're actually seeing in real life with the patients in front of us. Um, but, uh, you know, I want to be respectful of your time, <laughs> but I do appreciate you bringing up those important points because that, that's a fascinating side conversation. But moving on to this clinical trial that, um, that you were involved with and was published. It was called the PREPARE trial. Uh, what does this acronym stand for and what was the hypothesis uh, that you used for um, designing the study? So um, the name is actually taken from Person Empowered Asthma Relief. Um, and mm. the reason we called it that was that, as I mentioned in the beginning, um, we thought that if we're gonna try to come up with a solution for these groups where these large disparities exist, we need to really think about interventions that empower patients and involve patients in thinking about the solutions. And so the approach we took, which we called PARDIX, um, which is what we used in the PREPARE trial in the Person Empowered Asthma Relief Study, was um, a, what we, um, that was patient-activated reliever-triggered inhaled corticosteroid. So what we did is we met with patients in these groups and we said, what are the biggest, um, what are the biggest problems for you with your asthma? And people talked about how exacerbations were a major problem for them, that they kept them from work, they kept them out of school, people lost their jobs, they didn't know what to do about childcare, um, that these were major problems for them. But we also talked to them about different options in terms of relief. And what they talked about was they felt that they needed to have better control on their own of their asthma, that, um, that something where they felt that they were in control would be much more attractive to them and they thought to their, um, to other, pe other people with asthma. And so we had, um, on the basis of these smart data and on the basis of other studies that were um, supported by the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute through what was called the Asthma Clinical Research Network, we had actually shown that you could take an inhaled corticosteroid and tell people to use, and this is in non-real-world studies, um, and have them use the inhaled corticosteroid with the short-acting beta agonist whenever they use the short-acting beta agonist, and um, that we could actually improve asthma outcomes. And so when we fleshed this out with these patients, they said, we would like something like that. We would like something where we feel we're in control. We determine when we take the medicines. Um, and, and then there's less of an issue for us. As you probably know, Dave, um, when one looks at the re refills on regular inhaled corticosteroids, which we ask patients to take regularly, the refills are only 25% in a year. So mm -hmm. most of our patients are not refilling their inhaled corticosteroids. And so what th these patients said is, give us this, tell us how to do this, empower us, and then we think that we and other patients like us will really glom onto this, um, that they'll want to do this, that they'll see the difference and that they'll feel that they're in control. So that's what we did. Um, we, um, we designed a study where we 
um, told patients, we gave patients, uh, the, um, this was a real life study, and I, do you want me to go into the details of that now or? Um, Yes. Uh, although, can you just, um, I, I don't, I think you mentioned this or alluded to, what was the hypothesis? So what were you trying, so what question were you trying to answer? So the question, the hypothesis was, could giving patients a patient activated reliever triggered inhaled corticosteroid, um, giving them a inhaled corticosteroid and telling them and just instructing them once, um, telling them to use their inhaled corticosteroid every time they use their reliever. Um, on, and that's reliever, um, meaning their inhaler or their nebulizer, um, that they should use one puff for puff when they use the inhaler. And because, as I mentioned, we generally think about five puffs of an inhaler being equal to a nebulizer, we instructed them to take five puffs of the inhaled corticosteroid every time they use their nebulizer. And we said this, use this on top of your um, regular therapy, whatever you're taking. Um, patients had to be on at least an inhaled corticosteroid, but whatever you're taking, use this on top of your therapy. And our hypothesis was that we reduce exacerbations, that we would improve um, asthma control, we would improve quality of life, and we would decrease days lost from work in school. These were all with the patients that we talked to, things that they thought were important in terms of real life outcomes. Okay. So just so I make sure I have it clear, you... Um took a group of uh, patients with asthma who traditionally have been, you know, underrepresented in clinical trials, and you asked them what they would like. <laughs> you had a discussion with them, you listened right. to them, and then you actually designed a clinical trial uh, with these specific patients enrolled and nobody else to try to answer that question and see if it actually showed some benefit. Does that uh, sound appropriate? Yes. Yes. So what we did is um, we, yeah. <laughs> we enrolled 600 African-American. Our goal was to enroll 600 African-American blacks and 600 Hispanic Latinx patients um, and to um, randomize them to either do this or to continue their regular therapy. Um, we um, taught all their, all their caregivers um, were instructed in the latest NAPP guidelines. We use the actually American Academy of Asthma, Allergy and Immunology instruction set um, for this. And they were all certified that they had, they knew and understood how to um, do NAPP guideline therapy and in both groups. And then one group was just continued with that. And the other group was given the, um, in this case, we gave them QVAR and with the instructions. And there was a, um, a single visit where the patients had a face-to-face -face visit. They were instructed in this, they watched a video and all the patients, both the patients who got, um, who were randomized to the intervention, those who were not, all watched a video on asthma control. The patients who were randomized to Partix also watched a short video on how to do Partix. And then they were sent on their way. And then every month we would send them a survey and say, did you have an exacerbation? Um, fill out an asthma control test so we understand how your asthma control is. Tell us if you've lost days from work and school. And, um, and that went on for 15 months. And the patient population we studied, in addition to the, them being um, self-identified African-American, Black, or Hispanic, Latinx, um, we wanted to take patients who are poorly controlled. So it was patients who are on at least an inhaled corticosteroid. Um, they could be on anything plus that. Um, and in addition, they needed to either have an asthma control test of less than 20. And as you probably know, a asthma control test value of 19 or less is considered poor control and a point at which you'd consider um, uh, something more. And um, or they had to have had an exacerbation in the last year. Um, there were no other, it was self-identified or actually physician identified asthma. There were no PFTs to prove that you had asthma. Um, there was um, it was basically diagnosis 
um, physician diagnosis, there were no restrictions in terms of smoking history. Again, um, you know, we see, we think we, <laughs> we see pure asthma, but many of the patients we see are smokers, either current smokers, we allowed current smokers, um, and we allowed uh, patients who had former smoking. We excluded patients if they had a, if they had a clinical diagnosis of COPD. Um, because COP, this isn't the best, wouldn't be the best treatment for patients who really have COPD. Um, but we really, I thought, had a very wide kind of what you'd see in the office. You know, patients come to you, um, you think they have asthma, and um, yeah, maybe they're a smoker, maybe they're not. Um, and you know, what do you what do you do? Mm-hmm. What were the ages that you included in the study? This was an adult study, so it was page, ages eighteen to seventy five. Okay. So uh, just so I make sure I understand, there was one educational intervention uh, and both groups basically received information about asthma control. But then in the um, the group that received the intervention, they also received additional information about how to use their on-demand or smart therapy. And then you just followed them for 15 months with no additional education or uh, instructions. Is that correct? There, right. There were no additional instructions in the monthly, you know, Mostly, many of these patients filled out their surveys um, online, um, either um, mm-hmm. on a smartphone or um, on the web. Um, when for the Pardix group, um, we did we did say um, on the at the end, um, remember to use one puff and five puffs. Um, but that okay. was that was really it. Um, and the other thing mm-hmm. to just be clear about is that we did um, we did supply in the case of the. Partix intervention, we supplied the QVAR. Um, so we mm-hmm. gave them a QVAR um, and we said, you know, here, you're using whatever you're using. And it, it, it's not smart therapy, remember, because um, smart is, um, mm-hmm. well, smart is, it's normally said is, is, um, is a single and ours is simultaneous, right? So, but, sure. um, but uh, you could call it smart if you want to expand smart. Uh, and um, so we gave them a QVAR and we gave them an 800 number to call for refills. Um, on on the QVAR. And throughout the duration of the study, otherwise their asthma management was left up to the discretion of their treating physician? Exactly. Okay. Uh, you've, you've touched upon this uh, a few times, but can you just explain why a real-world study design is important and how this particular trial incorporated that into your procedures? So, so I think that there's really we talk about uh, efficacy and effectiveness studies, right? Efficacy studies are tightly controlled, a, um, a narrow population where you're trying to demonstrate, prove the effect. And then there's effectiveness studies where you're trying to say, well, now that I've proven the effect, or I think I know the effect, does it work in a real world population? So talking about SMART. So the SMART studies, as I said, were done in a very select population, right, in patients who had an exacerbation last year, proven diagnosis of asthma, um, patients who were not on nebulizers, right? And so, and what they showed is, yes, when you do that in that population and not using nebulizers, then you get a significant reduction in exacerbations. But the question then becomes, are there factors that we haven't considered in a real population that may not make smart as we tested it, as effective as we think, right? So, and to give you a simpler example, you know, we'll do studies, uh, efficacy studies, where we enforce the adherence of the population, right? And so we may get a, you know, outstanding effect when we enforce adherence. 
But in real world studies, when you actually don't have enforced adherence, some things fall flat on their face because people don't want to do them. Mm-hmm. And, it, that, and that's actually, to some degree, what happens with regular inhaled corticosteroids, right? Um, what happens is that, yes, when you enforce it and you monitor the adherence and you do the counts and you have remote things that make sure the patients do and you call them and remind them that they have to do this and say you're falling off the wagon, um, yes, so you get these very dramatic results. But when we find out that actually in real life, 75% of patients are not refilling, 75% of the time, patients are not refilling their inhaled corticosteroids, we have a problem, right? And so the intervention, while we know when it's worked in an ideal circumstance, may not work in real life circumstance. And matter of fact, one of the you know serious concerns we have, and I'll, I'll admit that I did not even realize this before I started doing the study, and before the patients pointed out to us, that all the SMART studies excluded patients who are nebulizers, and that basically mm-hmm. SMART probably won't work anywhere near as well if you're using a lot of nebulizers. And on average, our patients were using nebulizers two and a half times a week. Um, mm-hmm. 60% of them reported that they use nebulizers. Um, so these patients are using their nebulizers a lot, and then they don't activate SMART because you can't take SMART. You can't take a combined single inhaler with your nebulizer. You'll be overdoing the albuterol in a major way or overdoing the bronchodilator in a major way. That's why they were excluded from all those studies. But that's why it's really important to do real life studies and make sure that what you've done really works to the same degree that you saw in your very controlled, selected populations. Uh, do you anticipate that future asthma studies will incorporate more of this real-world design, or at least is that what you're hoping for? Well, I, I think it really depends. I think efficacy studies have an important role. You, when you need to know whether something works, you have no idea. You need to do an efficacy study to say, hey, if I do the ideal population, if I do enforcement or of adherence, does this work? Maybe I've got something here that is useless, right? And then if you can prove that it works, then then I think it's really important to go out to real life studies. And another example of this is, for instance, um, when we do efficacy studies, um, Montelukast, the leukotriene blocker, is only about half as effective as inhaled corticosteroids. Um, but there was a study published um, actually in the New England Journal, um, I think it might have been 10 years ago now, which looked at real life comparison of a leukotriene antagonist versus an inhaled corticosteroid, and they were equivalent in real life. And the reason for that is that people don't like to use inhalers and that they find Mm -hmm. that taking pills is easy. (laughs) And so again, in real life, even though in controlled studies, inhaled corticosteroids are clearly quite a bit more effective than leukotriene antagonists, in real life, the way we use them, they're about equivalent. So so that's again an important reason to think about doing real life studies after you prove something can work. No, that's great. Um, yeah, it makes me think of uh, former U S surgeon general C Everett Koop has a famous quote, drugs don't work in people who don't use them. Exactly. Um, so yeah. It, yeah. It's not <laughs> well, only back to the study. people don't use oh. them. It's also in, if not necessarily in the, um, they may not work in a population in which they weren't studied. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. There you go. Yes. We can uh, make that now. Uh, Dr. Israel's famous quote. <laughs> so um, back to this study that we were discussing, uh, remind us again, what were the primary and secondary endpoints that you um, incorporated to help determine if there were any differences? between? So the primary course? endpoint was, again, and this was based on discussion with the patients, was exacerbations. And we used the standard definition of a severe exacerbation, which is a increase in asthma symptoms, which prompted a use of oral corticosteroids or a hospitalization due to asthma. 
Okay. And were there other um, metrics yes. that you looked at as well? You mentioned asthma control tests, things yes. like that. Yeah, so the secondary outcomes were the asthma control test, um, something called the ACQ, the asthma control questionnaire, which uh, measures quality of life. And the third was days lost from work or school. Mm, okay. Well, as we move into the results, can you, uh, you know, you can give us a higher level and we can reference people to the, the actual article to look at all the details. But uh, you mentioned before about how many patients were enrolled in each group, or at least your target. But can you just review for us, how many did you get in each group? Uh, you know, breakdown of percentages, men compared to women, distribution of race, and then you know, any other key factors surrounding baseline asthma or comorbid conditions. That you can sure, sure. So, so these were um, as I said, as I mentioned, we wanted to enroll 1,200 patients. We wanted them to be half mm-hmm. African-American black and half Hispanic Latinx. Uh, we ended up enrolling 601 African-American blacks and 600 um, Hispanic Latinx patients. And the patients um, were patients who 85, 80 to 85% women, which is interesting when you look at the asthma studies, in most asthma studies, the number of women always exceeds the number of men, and it's frequently 65% and up, although we had 85% um, in, in this population. And the population actually was significantly obese. Um, the proportion of patients, there was a large proportion of patients who had a BMI, basal um, body mass index of greater than 30. Um, this was a population that had a lot of comorbidities. Um, we used a comorbidity index. Most of them had um, at least one, and almost the majority had two or more comorbidities. Um, this was a um, population that um, 70% of them had had an exacerbation in the past year. Um, and as I mentioned, this population, 60 to 65% reported that they used a nebulizer, that they use a nebulizer. And in the study, um, on average, the nebulizer use was two and a half times a week. So a, a lot of neb use in, uh, the, in this population. I'm curious as to your thoughts. I know you can't answer this with any definitive information, unless you can, of course. But uh, you know, 85% women. Do you think that that reflects just more willingness to participate in a clinical trial, or uh, more willingness for you know uh, active self-management, or any thoughts on that? Um, I, I think it's very interesting, and I, I think there's a, I suspect there's a sociological um, component to this, um, and I mm-hmm. think you, you've touched on several interesting theories um, about why. Um, why women in these populations might be more amenable to participating in a clinical trial. Yeah, really interesting. Well, what did you find? So this is a, a real world trial where um, you gave you know the intervention and here's how to manage your asthma whenever you have symptoms. What did you find regarding adherence uh, to that in the intervention group? Um, so um, again, we, um, so we, this was all self-reported, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we, you know, we didn't use anything. So we asked patients, um, okay, um, are you using this? <laughs> and um, do you use it all the time, some of the time, most of the time? Um, and are you using, you know, are you taking a puff per puff? Are you taking five puffs um, every time you do your NEB? Um, the majority of patients said they were doing it. I think it was more than 70% of the patients, as I recall, don't quote me on this one, um, said that they were doing it um, all the time or most of the time. And um, the majority said that they were doing puff for puff for the inhaler. Um, 
the majority said they were using four or more puffs when they use their net net. Okay. All right. Now's the, I guess the moment we've all been waiting for. Uh, so the easy question is, did it work? But, you know, to, to spell it out, the primary endpoint again was annualized rate of severe asthma exacerbations. Did you find a significant difference between the intervention and control groups in regards we, to that? We did. We did. Um, so I, I think we were all obviously very pleased. Um, we found that there was a 0.12 um, exacerbation per year reduction in um, in exacerbate 0.13 rather exacerbation reduction in patients per year and that's kind of hard to wrap your head around but let me actually put that in perspective so as mm-hmm. many of you know the NAPP update in 2021 um, said that you should use smart therapy for moderate to severe asthmatics and they cited 10 articles that made them believe that they should change the recommendations for um, asthma therapy for the United States. And so we went back to those 10 articles and we looked at what the average reduction in exacerbations was in those 10 articles. Um, and we weighted it based on the number of patients that were in the study and the length of the study. And the reductions in the exacerbations in the SMART trials, and remember the SMART trials were efficacy trials, not effectiveness. And we'll talk about some of the difference there in a minute again, because um, we can give you some numbers there. But so if you look at the average weighted reduction exacerbations, and my colleague Juan Carlos Cardet went uh, went through and did this, um, the reduction was 0.12 exacerbations per patient per year. So we actually um, met what caused the NAPP to say, hey, we need to change asthma recommendations. But I'll tell you that, remember, I told you we did not um, say you had to have an exacerbation in the past year. We did not say you had to bronchodilate. We actually didn't even measure um, whether you bronchodilate or not. We know both those things dramatically increase the response to inhaled corticosteroids when you measure exacerbations. And so, but we did have the information. Remember, I mentioned to you that 70% of the patient population we enrolled actually had had an exact reported to us that they'd had an exacerbation in the past year. If we looked at just the gr- that group, that 70%, and looked at the reduction in exacerbations there, the reduction in exacerbations there was 0.22 exacerbations per mm. year, almost double what the um, mean changes were for SMART. I have no idea um, how much more this would have gone up if we had restricted ourselves in that population only to people who bronchodilated. Because as you know, again, mm-hmm. that's frequently an index of patients who are non-adherent um, and who would respond nicely um, to inhaled corticosteroids. So, um, so we, were, you know, we were very pleased. And I, I think that's why um, the New Journal thought this was an important thing as well um, in terms of this population and being able to achieve effects that are at least equivalent to what SMART had gotten. And again, um, suggested that it even would be more than that if we restricted ourselves the way SMART had. That's mm, oh, a really interesting perspective about that. Uh, what about all those secondary endpoints that you just discussed with us? I, I can yeah. only assume that you found some differences along those as well. Right. And the other thing to remember is, remember, we, we allowed nebulizer use. Um, so the other, oh, sure. um, right, so, so this is potentially half this population might not have had much of an effect from SMART. Um, and we've done a sub-analysis, which shows us actually that the effect of um, Pardix is even greater in patients who use more. The more NEBS you use, the greater the effect of Pardix. Um, so the in the mm. so the asthma control test. Um, so we had a three point four point improvement in the asthma control test in the patients who were on Pardix, and there was a two and a half point um, improvement in the usual care group. Um, that difference is 0.9. As you know, for an individual patient, 
a three-point or more change in the asthma control test is considered a, a change that a patient perceives. And so the mm -hmm. fact that we had a three and a half, almost a three and a half point difference um, on average um, is gives you a, a sense of the fact that this really did change things, which is interesting. We weren't sure this would happen. Many of the SMART studies don't show a significant improvement in asthma control. They reduce exacerbations, um, you know, because patients, what, what happens, what we think happens in terms of the exacerbations is that what we think happens is that patients start using inhaled corticosteroids more um, and it, 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 an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Um, and so as they start using their reliever more, they're getting more inhaled corticosteroid, and that helps blunt the likelihood of an, of an exacerbation. But in many of these SMART studies, most of the SMART studies, there hasn't been an increase in asthma control, which is, you know, the kind of daily um, level uh, of symptoms. Um, and it's interesting that we saw this. I, I think it relates to the fact that um, these patients were using inhalers and NEBs a, a fair amount. And so we're ending up getting a, a moderately more at the right time um, for these patients. And in terms of the asthma, um, the asthma control questionnaire, which is the quality of life questionnaire, um, the change in that was a, a 0.12 um, improvement versus a 0.08. And for the asthma control questionnaire, a 0.09 is considered a perceptible difference um, by patients. Mm -hmm. And then for the days lost from work or school, um, which, which we asked them, there was a small but significant um, three and a half day difference um, in days lost per work or school per year. Um, so again, a, a reduction um, in that as well. The other thing is we also did some post hoc analyses, which um, Mm -hmm. uh, we, ha we hadn't pre-specified it, but we're, I think, very important. First of all, um, in terms of the actual amount of extra QVAR or inhaled corticosteroid that these patients used, it's very interesting. So we asked patients to tell us about how each time they refilled their um, controller medication and um, um, each time they uh, um, refilled their NEBs and, and used their NEBs um, and inhalers. And so what we found was um, that there was actually a reduction. We didn't tell patients to do this, but uh, you know, we know patients don't use their regular inhaled steroids. There was a reduction in the use of um, the controller medication. And so the average um, amount of increase of controller medication, when you include the QVAR, um, was 1.1 canisters a year. So we got this reduction, which was equivalent to what was done in the efficacy trial for SMART, um, with a very small amount of average increased use of controller medication. Um, to give you some idea, the increase in controller in um, controller medication in SMART studies is about four canisters a year. Um, the mm -hmm. other piece of this is that we, in addition to seeing this reduction in, um, in the controllers, which we, as I said, we hadn't instructed them, what we were pleased to see was that there's a reduction in the nebulizer use. Um, and that reduction was, I think, from about five and a half to like three and a half. Again, I'm doing this a little bit from memory. Um, and actually, um, um, so again, a reduction in, um, in, in beta agonist use. And as you know, um, beta agonist use is really correlated with asthma morbidity and asthma death. So we were really pleased to see that these patients in addition to having decreased exacerbations, we're actually finding that they needed to use their nebulizers less. Um, we 
um, we weren't powered for emergency room visits or hospitalizations, but numerically there was a reduction in the um, emergency room visits and the hospitalizations. Both of them, interestingly, were about a 16% reduction in hospitalizations and emergency room visits. Well, it sounds like across the board, you found very uh, promising and favorable results in the intervention group. Uh, was there any uh, serious adverse events that you noticed? Um, and if so, what were they and did they differ between the two groups? No, uh, we didn't We didn't notice any uh, difference in serious adverse events. Um, as a real life study, we didn't, uh, you know, we didn't uh, query people about, you know, all their symptom things. We only really tracked serious adverse mm -hmm. events. There wasn't any difference in serious adverse events. Okay. Well, you know, lastly, all studies and clinical trials have certain limitations. Yeah, I mean, it's just impossible to cover everything that you need to. So what would you consider to be the main limitations with this trial? Um, so uh, I, I think that well, first, it was very real life. So I think um, um, the, the, you know, the, we, you know, one could argue that, hey, we gave these people QVAR, right? And so that's not real life, right? Um, you know, in real life, people won't get free QVAR. Um, on the other hand, um, the, the inhaled corticosteroids are now becoming generic. Um, they're very easy to get. 1.1 um, extra canisters on average is a small, small um, in, um, amount. The we didn't change underlying therapy, so you didn't. Ha you, you don't have to say to somebody, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna sit here and change your therapy. I'm gonna explain to you how to do all these new this, these new therapies. Forget about everything I've told you before." Um, and so I, I think that that's you know that, that's a strength. Um, but giving the QVAR um, every month could be seen as a potential weakness um, in in interpreting the efficacy of this. Um, the I think the, um, you know, again, we, you know, we, we only instructed people once. They did get reminders once a month, and she could say that that's a little bit less real. Um, but, um, you know, there, there is a combined inhaled corticosteroid albuterol coming out as well, which maybe we wouldn't require a reminder. Um, I think those are the, you know, um, major things. That's it, because we really tried to make it fairly real life. Sure. No, absolutely. Well, uh, okay, along those lines, so we have this great publication and, and these um, very favorable results. How should these findings be translated into real-world practice, uh, particularly in relation to existing use of smart therapy? Well, so I first of all, uh, smart therapy is not used a lot in, in the United States. <laughs> um, mm. So, um, and I, I think if you have a patient who's on smart therapy, who's getting um, inhaled corticosteroid for Motorol, um, and they're doing well, there's no reason to change any of that because of this, right? Um, I think that that's really not um, reasonable. Um, but if you have patients who are on, you know, daily inhaled corticosteroids, still aren't well controlled, I, this is a fairly simple intervention of saying to them, in addition to what, it, what you're doing, I'd like you to take your inhaled corticosteroid, you know, and either I'll give you another prescription or again, because you're not refilling it much anyway, <laughs> right? So you, you have lots of refills mm -hmm. available. Um, I'd like you to take, you know, I'm telling you to take your, you know, your inhaled corticosteroid or your inhaled corticosteroid LABA twice a day. In addition, I'd like you to take 
if you have an inhaled corticosteroid, I'd like you to take the inhaled corticosteroid whenever you use your meter dose inhaler for relief. Um, and whenever you use your nebulizer, I'd like you to take five puffs when you use your nebulizer. And I just want you to do that and remember to do that and reinforce that when they come back in for their visits. For patients who are on a combination ICS-LABA, you'd have to write an additional script for an inhaled corticosteroid. Um, we have found that that is not an issue in terms of insurance reimbursement. Insurance won't let you write two ICS-LABAs. They won't let you write frequently two inhaled, two inhaled corticosteroids, but insurance doesn't seem to object to an ICS-LABA and an ICS or just an ICS with um, you know, greater use of the ICS. And so in, in my practice, when I do this, I either write a separate prescription for an inhaled corticosteroid, and we did this with QVAR. I think there's every reason to believe, um, although we didn't test it, that any inhaled corticosteroid at the high dose would give you the same effect. So if somebody's insurance doesn't cover QVAR, I think the first choice would be QVAR because that's what was tested. But if the insurance doesn't cover QVAR, then I think it's perfectly okay to go ahead and do it with a different inhaled corticosteroid. And I basically write the script and I say, um, inhaled corticosteroid, use one puff with um, uh, um, every time you use a reliever inhaler and five puffs if you, if you use a NEP. Um, and we have had very little difficulty with that type of prescription, um, even if somebody's on an ICS LABA um, at the same time. Um, when somebody's already on an ICS and already on an inhaled corticosteroid, um, I write, I'll write a separate prescription. And sometimes I will run into an in insurance issue uh, with that, many times not. Um, again, it's frequently not a problem, unfortunately, because most of our patients, whether they admit it or not, when you look at pharmacy refill records, are not using their inhalers twice a day. So they have plenty of inhaled mm -hmm. steroid to use um, on the PRN basis. And that's what we saw here when, you know, we, as I said, we saw a decrease in controller use, um, in self-reported controller use um, in these patients. You know, I'm really glad that you touched upon the insurance aspect of it because, you know, when I talk to my colleagues and especially in primary care, that's the number one thing everybody says is there's no way that insurance is going to, you know, pay for more than one ICS LABA uh, per month or anything like that. But they you don't. mentioned even in the smart. Yeah. So what's it going to take? This is, I mean, this is a problem with smart. You know, again, you know, yeah. I, I've pointed out a lot. Of, I didn't talk about the other impediments. You know, the, I talked about the you know reason to question whether smart will work. In these type of populations anywhere near as well as the efficacy studies but but you know we, we I, I run into this problem all the time where you know i, I try to write for two um ics labas right um because you know one they're taking twice a day and the the other one they need as on the prn and i get a rejection from insurance um and i i think that is a battle that you know we will continue to have to fight remember the other problem with that is that the fda um in its patient in the package insert says that the ICS lobbyists should not be used on a PRN basis. And the FDA is not going to change that. The companies are not going to do the studies with a regulatory filing to change that wording. Mm -hmm. So many of the insurance companies say, I'm really sorry. Um, this is against the package insert. We will not pay for it. That's so interesting. And we could, again, that's a whole side conversation, but I'm glad you it touched is. upon it. It's just fascinating. <laughs> I, I mean, the, you know, the, the NHLBI asthma guidelines endorse it yes. across the world and we know it works. It actually saves them, you know, paying for an ER visit, but all right, you got me all worked up now. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, uh, you so, know, look, this, this is the, um, you know, 
we're living in a real world and we've got, we've got to deal yeah. with, what we're, you know, the, this, you know, as, as practitioners, we have, to, you know, um, it's great to say, Oh, in the pie in the sky, this works that way, but gee, I can't get it to work <laughs> in the real world. Right. Um, yeah. So that, yeah that, to paraphrase. Yeah. We'll paraphrase C. Everett Coop. Drugs don't work when insurance companies don't pay for them. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, yes. Well, uh, moving forward, what measures can be taken to include more underrepresented minorities in clinical trials, uh, like what you performed here? What, what else can we do? Well, so, you know, uh, th- this is a longstanding problematic issue um, that is not going to be solved in a day. Um, you, there's a lot of history here. Tuskegee and others like it um, have created a lot of mistrust in um, in these populations, right? And so I think it is not easy to overcome that mistrust. And that is going to take a long time to change. I think it involves active effort because of that. You can't just say, you know, I'll, I'll you know, I'll put up my flag and whoever comes, um, that's great. Um, because then what happens is that a lot of these underrepresented groups or these disproportionately affected groups don't come. Um, for multiple reasons, um, one being potentially distrust. Another is for sometimes there are structural barriers to involvement in studies. If study visits are long um, and you can't take time off from work um, and, you know, you're being paid or you're being paid by the hour, um, then you can't do this, right? And so one of the other pieces of this was we, you know, this was a study that was basically hands-off after the first visit. You know, we followed these Mm -hmm. patients for 15 months, but all the follow-up was remote, right? So these patients could do this whenever they wanted to. Um, And we had, I I didn't talk about this, but we had an astounding 92% retention response rate. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know if you know what it's like in these studies, um, but that that is off the charts. Usually you're happy if you get 70%. Um, sure. And but but what we did is, um, as I said, we tried to really minimize the impact um, in terms of the study. There was only that one visit. And in many cases, that one visit occurred during a standard visit. Um, half the, half the um, groups that were doing this were not allergist immunologists. They were primary care physicians. Right. And these occurred at hmm. in many cases, they occurred at the visit. It was coordinated with, with the visit. The other thing is we compensated these patients adequately for their time. Um, so when they filled out a survey, they got paid. Right. So, again, it was um, and what what um, our patient partners talked about was this sense of respect that um, hmm. they felt respected. Um, and so I, I think that's another piece of this. Um, but I think it does take actively thinking about how you're going to include these groups and going out and recruiting these groups um, in, in, or, in order to do this. Yeah, well, those are great thoughts. Uh, just out of curiosity, when they got paid, was it um, instantaneous? Did you have some sort of electronic payment set up so that once they submitted the survey, they saw something in a, you know, an electronic debit account or something like that? Precisely. They had a, uh, they, they were issued um, a, uh, you know, a debit card. And as soon mm-hmm. as they filled out the, within a day or two of them filling out the survey, uh, extra money was added to their, to the debit card. Yeah. I mean, you touched upon this, but it's instead of making them 
take a bus or two buses to come down to the clinical trial site to, you know, do the surveys and tests. And then, you know, they get their gift card at that visit. You just, you pay them as they do it electronically and make it all mobile. It, it makes perfect right. sense as we move forward. Right. You know? Right. And so well, you know, one, one of the other, if I can mention this, uh, cause it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, um, we survived the pandemic, um, the COVID pandemic, um, because we were entirely remote. We we finished enrolling our last patient in March of 2020, um, which was the month that the pandemic hit. Um, and we were able to continue without any interruption. And the interesting thing is we published actually in uh, Jackie in practice, um, we looked at the rates of exacerbations before the pandemic and during the pandemic. And what we saw was a 45% reduction in exacerbations um, during the pandemic. Um, which you can, you can look in Jackie in practice and well, we, we talk about this, but we had a wonderful opportunity to see what the pandemic did, um, which we think was related actually to obviously decreased exposures um, yeah, um, and, and, and probably viral illnesses. Um, so really fascinating kind of side things that are coming out of this. Well, Dr. Zero, I can't thank you enough for uh, taking the time to summarize, you know, everything that you, you went in, that went into this trial and the findings. And uh, we will put a link for all of our listeners so you can actually go read the study yourself on in the New England Journal of Medicine. And with, if I may, as we conclude, I'd have one last question for you. And it's kind of a, it's sort of a, a, a mind reading, you know, uh, prospects of the future, but throughout your career, you've witnessed significant paradigm shifts in both our understanding of asthma pathophysiology, as well as, you know, how we treat asthma. Would you care to offer any thoughts as to how this will continue to evolve in the future? Any, uh, you know, crystal ball ideas of what we'll be doing in 10, 15, 20 years? Um, so I, I can tell you what I aspire to. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> you know, I, I think we are making significant strides in reducing the impact of asthma. Um, there's still a long way to go, but what I really aspire to is a cure. <laughs> um, we mm. none of the therapies we have so far, as we know, even the, even the biologics so far as we know, um, really change the trajectory of asthma. Once and I, and I, I should be clear about that. They they make people better as long as you take them, um, but once you stop your asthma comes back. And what I'd really love to see is um, in what, what, I'm what we're all hoping for, and I think working toward as we try to understand the pathobiology of asthma, is can we cut this off? Can we either prevent it from happening? And I and a colleague, another allergist, Wanda Fipotanical, are actually doing a study where we are giving um, anti-IgE to two to four-year-olds who are at high risk for developing mm -hmm. asthma to see if we can stop the development of asthma in these kids who are have a 70 to 80% risk of developing asthma. Um, and so, so I, I think we're, what I really, what I aspire to is, is a cure, either a prevention um, and the possibility of some cure, breaking that cycle, whatever that, that inflammatory cycle auto-inflammatory cycle that perpetuates asthma, um, figuring out how we can break that cycle so we can really have people throw away their crutches, um, throw away their medications, and, um, and be cured. Well, I think that would be great. And uh, I would love to have you back on whenever your, your study has concluded, and uh, we can talk about what you find in this exciting new efforts at prevention as well. Dr. Israel, thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to join us. Uh, any last words before we depart? 
Um, my first of all, my, my pleasure. But uh, my, I think the last words. I think we're all working together to try to make um, uh, to make asthma less of a problem for uh, such a large swath of, of our patients. And there's still a lot of work to be done. Well, thank you again. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Please visit www.aaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening. <laughs>